Congress, we're um, now almost entering, I guess, the end of the fifth week into the sixth week of war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, or I should say Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, there has been uh, a lot of changes over the last uh, a few weeks in terms of our assessment of the military situation, our understanding of the possible goals of Russia, the question of what American policy should be. Uh, the question of how best um, to uh, uh, handle or deal with the situation on the part of, of the European countries as well. Um, I wonder if you could start us off maybe with your assessment of the current situation in Ukraine, what it looks like, what you think seems to be happening on the ground, as well as in the diplomacy of the period. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I, I should start, first of all, thank you, you all for being here today. Um, I, I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to speak with you on this issue. Um, yeah, the, the situation in Ukraine, there's no question uh, that as we go week by week, it changes. And the fact that I'm saying week by week itself is a bit of a shocker. This was supposed to be probably a five to seven day conflict. Um, the goal was to uh, bifurcate the country to obviously surround Kiev, no indication it would be an occupation of Kiev, uh, but to split the country into take the coastal regions and ultimately the Ukrainian government would collapse. Um, every indication by the Russian intelligence uh, was that this was the case. It obviously wasn't. And, and of course, today, if we're looking at what's the current situation, um, first we start with the phrase you use, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that's an important one because the battle of the narrative is still out there. Um, a number of countries still call it the special military operation. Uh, they don't use the word war. In fact, if you use the word war in the Russian media, that is subject to fine and imprisonment. Uh, so you cannot call it a war. Um, you know, you can call it, you know, certain military operations, special military operations. It's a limited campaign. Uh, that has bled into the narratives of other countries in Central Asia, the Caucasus, uh, in South Asia, in the Gulf states, uh, different places. I've had the, either the pleasure or misfortune over the last uh, five weeks to, to, to visit and to meet with individuals. And you see this approach coming out. So first and foremost, after five weeks, we're still discussing what is it. Uh, secondly, 
again, the fact that we're discussing it means that there's been resistance, no kidding. Um, I think that was probably the gross underestimation of the West in addition to Russia and other states. Now, you know, where does this come from? You know, where does this resolve of the Ukrainians to fight back? Um, some will talk about the modernization of the Ukrainian military that was slowly, slowly taking place since 2014. Um, others simply note, because they're there, when you're defending your home turf, the motivation is a little harder, right? And so um, we do see that taking place. In fact, I, even early this morning, I was on a call with a colleague of mine in Odessa. Uh, she runs a research center there. And, you know, she's... She's getting quite feisty about this and talking about our boys doing this and our boys doing that. And there is a pride uh, in Ukraine of what's happening. Now, this doesn't negate the fact that there's violence, bloodshed, destruction taking place. And this is angering Ukrainians. But uh, clearly, there's, uh, uh, you know, from their perspective, there's motivation to fight. Um, and then just the third quick point is... Um, if we're seeing this conflict, which is really one state invading another, the fear that it can expand or may already be expanding is being talked about much more. Um, you know, we've hit a stalemate moment. Um, you know, uh, uh, Institute for the Study of War, other organizations, you know, do these daily maps of what territory Russia controls, what they don't. I'm gonna, get, gonna give everyone in this room a caution. Anytime you see these maps that show here's territories Russia owns, here's territories they don't. I spent over 20 years working in Afghanistan or with Afghanistan, and we did the same thing. Don't, you know, use these with caution. Often the Russians control the road in a space. They don't control the fields on either side. They don't control the rest stops. They don't control the small villages and towns. And so I've even seen some maps which show actual Russian troop presence, uh, 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 um, Bellingcat's a wonderful source for, for you researchers. Uh, they love to look at specifics. And, and you almost see this like veins, you know, spider veins going through areas where Russia controls. In the South, it's a little more effective in part because the military units in the South are better. These are, are more seasoned troops. In the North, uh, you have more conscripts. Um, but at the end of the day, we have a stalemate. And so the concern is, and this is what I'll, I'll, I'll kind of end with on the, the, this first point, is um, the inclusion of outside forces. Now, when they say, oh, we're bringing in Chechens, these are still internal Russian forces. Let's be, let's be clear. Chechens are citizens of Russia, the Russian Federation. Um, but when we start bringing in Syrians, when we start bringing in uh, individuals, as they say, with experience in Libya, I don't know how we're going to phrase that other than outsiders coming in. Um, we might see an expansion. And of course, on the Ukrainian side, um, you know, I've been criticized, you know, by Russian colleagues who will say, well, wait a second, you're also helping the Ukrainians and NATO is helping the Ukrainians, the Poles, the Lithuanians, the Germans, the Germans. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they want to supply lethal assistance. Um, Yes, it is expanding in other directions. And then I should add on, on the Ukrainian side, uh, the inclusion of volunteer units. Um, when the war first started and I sort of you know, saw this large power invading its smaller neighbor, um, are we gonna end up with some sort of you know, partisan effect? Those of you who know the history of World War II know that Ukraine and Russia have a long history of partisan warfare. 
Or is it like a Spanish Civil War where international brigades, Abraham Lincoln battalions come in? Guess what? We're having that. Americans, Canadians, Australians of Ukrainian descent, Brits of Ukrainian descent. Um, there was a, a buddy of mine, he's a, a BBC journalist. He was in Kiev and he saw this Ukrainian defense unit and they all had you know, North England accents. And he's like, you know, what is this? Um, there are, now these are small in number. Don't think that the, 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 the conflict is being flooded with outsiders, but the potential for expansion continues the longer it stalemates. Um, you raise a lot of, of issues that I'd love to, to explore in different detail. Um, let me, let me uh, take us though um, uh, to the United States. Um, I had a, a, I was uh, talking uh, before the uh, meeting uh, that uh, we both had unpleasant experiences with interviews um, and uh, reactions on Indian TV. And uh, I was doing a Zoom presentation there and I was accused of falling for the American media's narrative that the American media is portraying uh, the conflict in good versus evil terms. I'd like to ask you about the American response. It does seem um, that there is a great deal of interest in this country. There's a great deal uh, in the polling that indicates support for the Ukraine. There have been extremist comments on both sides of the political spectrum of people saying, well, we shouldn't be involved or that Russia or, or backing Putin. Um, and uh, uh, that, that, that is still there. But it does seem like there's an overwhelming consensus in this country uh, to support Ukraine. Um, in what ways and, and in what manner um, should, uh, or do you see the United States acting and what types of things might it still consider that you think would be prudent? What are you fear that it might do that might be improved? That's that's the harder question, right? Um, no, the, 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 I mean, to, to get the to the image issue and how the Russian invasion of Ukraine is being viewed in the U.S. You're, you're absolutely right. This has hit a certain chord, um, and you know, and and in part because you know, yes, it's a, a European country being attacked, and we haven't you know we haven't seen this since the Bosnian conflict, and and even that one seemed less attached, um, you know, uh, um, you know, the notion of, you know, the siege of Sarajevo, which, by the way, went on for two and a half years. So when we think of longevity of conflict, you know, those of you who remember the wars of the 90s know that these things can drag on. Um, but um, I, I think sort of the images of, you know, when we see the civilian destruction, the purposeful targeting of, of you know, whether they're hospitals or, or, or you know, uh, kindergartens and all this, um, you know, the the, the graphic images of, of you know, people, uh, uh, you know, burying their children, um, this hits a nerve. And, and there's two things that come out of this. One, and I think it is a fair criticism, um, that a number of Americans would say, well, they look just like us, you know, and pause for a moment, right? Because um, there's death and destruction happening in Yemen every day. We see this in <laughs> Afghanistan, um, you know, in Myanmar and other countries. Um, <laughs> But perhaps those are too distant. Perhaps they're not quite, uh, uh, you know, European enough for some viewers. There's a segment I would say who do attach, attach to that 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 perspective. There's another one though, and I think this is this is maybe the more important. It's a conflict where everything is being filmed. Um, and again, I'll go back to the Bosnian War. Um, we didn't have a lot of imagery. Uh, if you think of 
the siege of Sarajevo, and I had a chance, unfortunately, I should say in the 90s, to go to Sarajevo and you know, to see Sniper Alley and to see the places where horrible things happened after the fact. I was told, well, this is when this happened and this is where this happened. To go to Srebrenica, this is where the massacre happened. Okay, great. Um, today, we have these, right? So Ukrainians are out there in numbers filming everything. Um, international uh, organizations, I mentioned Bellingcat, but others, uh, uh, groups using satellite imagery are focusing on this. So, um, and I'll give actually a case for a Russian uh, uh, coverage. Um, there was a, uh, a, an anti-missile, uh, or a, 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 sorry, Brad rocket launcher unit that was a Ukrainian one that was hiding in the parking lot of a shopping mall in, in, in a, a, a Ukrainian city. I wanna say it was Kharkiv. Um, and it would pop out, fire its rockets, go back into the underground garage. And so eventually they just dropped a bomb on the garage and blew it up. Um, you know, eight civilians died. Now, the argument that the Russians will make, and this is actually fair, is there was a curfew. There shouldn't have been any civilians there. They were hitting a military target that was going after them. But the fact that we can have this back and forth about one single event with multiple images is something we've not had in other conflicts. We don't have multiple images of events taking place in Yemen, for example, or in Afghanistan. I mean, we might get an image. And so I just think this flood of, uh, if you wanna say this assault of, uh, on our senses of, 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 of pretty graphic images, if we choose to look, are out there and that does shape public opinion. So now getting to the, so what, what do we do? Um, from the US side, I, I'm actually, uh, pleased with the fact that there is talk uh, there. Sometimes it can be hostile, sometimes it can be nasty. Yes, I know we've we spent a couple of days with the, what is it, uh, the guy's gotta go, or what was the phrase, hunt Putin, right? You know, and, oh no, this is regime change. You know, it's, um, you know, I say that about every Chicago bear coach, you know, every two years. Um, but I don't mean anything existential to the guy, just a new coach. Uh, but the, um, the, the, um, the concern that the US is having is obviously we are technically not a party to this war. And, and even when people say, well, we need to do this and we need to do this, painful as it might be, we are not a party in this conflict and, and, and adding extra sanctions on, on Russia, possible, although now we are seeing you know, sort of economic levers used as, as uh, war weapons much more effectively than I think we've seen in the past. Um, but dragging you know NATO the US into an actual kinetic conflict you know into the war I think is still something that that uh, uh, you know US decision makers don't want to do they don't want to make that step um, and and so what what you're going to see is still rather belligerent language being used um, economic measures still being addressed uh, attempts to bring in other countries right now there's a big campaign to get the Gulf countries involved good luck with that uh, and our South Asian friends, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> you know that's that's the approach you're seeing. The fear is what happens if there's an accident. You know, you have a lot of NATO troops creeping up along the border. By the way, the within the borders of sovereign states, within the borders of Poland, within the borders of Lithuania. But what if there's an errant Russian missile, or even a purposeful one? Um, just like, you know, the errant Indian missile that launched into uh, Pakistan uh, the other week. And uh, um, 
you know, the Pakistanis were like, oh, you know, how could you do this? Well, these mistakes do happen or even purposeful mistakes. And I worry that, you know, whether you want to call it a fa false flag event or a real accident takes place that escalates. And the fear of escalation, particularly with a leadership in Russia that may or may not be detached from reality, and I'm just going to phrase it that way, um, both sides with weaponry that, quite frankly, is effective when you use the higher level ones. Um, yes, uh, uh, you know, when Mr. Putin even uses the N-word, nuclear weapons, uh, we have a problem. And so, um, you know, I, I do worry that the, that escalation because of an accident or a misinterpretation uh, could still be in play. Um, your question leads me to, to ask a little bit about your own sense of what is going on in Russia. Um, we are getting various reports with media has been largely restricted now, so it's, it's much more difficult, perhaps, uh, but for a time, of course, it was possible to, to, to see demonstrations um, occurring, uh, to see some opposition to the war, to see support for the war. Uh, the character, Putin has been variously characterized as a madman, as, as uh, uh, very clever by uh, a certain former president. Um, all of these sorts of dis discussions or, or directions. What the, the whole question of the oligarchs um, and what could be done to influence Putin and whether Putin can be made to see this differently. Um, recently, um, I read a fair amount about the idea that the military may be disillusioned and or simply giving Putin the wrong information. Uh, that was one of the big stories today. In fact, I think the president, President Biden, actually echoed that. Um, taking somewhat of a, a both a, a, a distant or, or, or perhaps a, so it's trying to step back, what's going on? What do you think is going on in Russian leadership circles now? Yeah, that's no, th this is the question I think we're all trying to figure out. In fact, I, I read there was an um, a, a intelligence group. This is an open source uh, a document they, they put out. It was a psychological assessment of Vladimir Putin and his leadership. And um, I think it was, it's, it was a lot of strange, yeah, I would say strange language trying to basically say, um, you know, he's a bully that can't back down. Okay, got it. Um, and so the question is, how do you get him to back down? And I think that's a debate that some are having, which is in the Russian leadership, what was supposed to be a short victorious war wasn't. Now, I'm going to stress that this war is not over. And in fact, Russia still is in the superior position. As much as we, and, you know, people may applaud the, um, the, the, the uh, fighting cap capacity, or should I say will of the Ukrainian people, um, it, I'm reminded of, you know, if you want to say something in my own family history in Finland, where in 1939, we did a, you know, my, they did a really good job in fighting back the Soviet Union in 1939. By March of 1940, the Soviet Union defeated Finland. At the end of the day, Soviet Union won that war. Uh, the larger power prevailed. So could Russia prevail control Ukraine or part of Ukraine, cut it in half and have an east-west. These are all possibilities. And I still think, in, in my opinion, that this is a thought process that is probably <clears throat> occupying Mr. Putin and some of the senior leaders. Now, we're getting into debates of, oh, we haven't heard from Gerasimov in a while, or Shoigu is a little silent. And of course, you have Chubayas' departure. Um, you know, you do see some defections. Um, 
you know, yeah, there, there, there could be people looking for alternatives. And I think what we're seeing, and I'll sort of end by the notion of looking for an off-ramp that would allow Russia to claim some semblance of victory. Um, you know, some have said, well, that's what we need to do. So when Zelensky made the comment of, well, Ukraine is willing to discuss neutrality, that hits a red button issue for Mr. Putin. Uh, the fact that uh, people would say, well, Crimea is gone, you know, Crimea is Russian. Um, that hits, uh, 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 if you want to say, the right note for Mr. Putin. There could be these special moments. And in fact, just the other day, he himself commented that, you know, the major, you know, the, our, our you know, major goals of the first phase are done, you know, uh, uh, the sort of so-called consolidation of Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, would that be sufficient? And, and so, you know, there are some who will say, by creating these off-ramps, we could de-escalate, but I'm just gonna throw two quick things out. One, a year ago, January, yes, January 21st, uh, uh, 2021, Mr. Putin writes a, or his name is affixed to a 5,000 word document that basically says, you know, Ukraine is this artificial state. And there's this whole notion of a unified Slav, you know, Slav world, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia. Um, and and he, he lays out a map of, what he sees the future of the space being. Um, we shouldn't discount the words of dictators and, and people in power. You know, if they say something, maybe he actually believes that. So point one. Uh, secondly, um, when it comes to, um, you know, if, if you wanna say the, the, the end state of, of how this, you know, if, if in fact he's able to walk back and says, okay, what I've done is sufficient, the consequences of this war are still going to be addressed. We're still looking most likely at instances of war crimes. We're looking at instances, you know, of, you know, one state causing irreparable damage to another. Uh, when we look at what's happened in Ukraine, the cost of reconstruction in that country is well into the multiple billions. Um, who's going to pay for this? Uh, is this going to be money confiscated from the oligarchs, Russian trust funds, and everything else from outside of Russia? Who knows? Um, can Russia go back into the community of nations? You know, can we all say, oh, you guys were bad, you know, but now, now everything's fine. Uh, you threw a tantrum and, and you broke a few things, but it's okay. I think we've passed that. It's been five weeks, we've passed that mark. So what are the consequences that Russia will have to face? You know, look, it's been, it's been over a decade and we're still struggling with this with Mr. Assad in Syria. Uh, we've had this with other leaders around the world. Mr. Putin now joins that club of pariahs. And, and I worry that not just how do we deal with him, his government, but also Russia as a nation and Russians as people, Russian academics, Russian athletes, Russian musicians, the people that we've kind of gotten to know over the last 30 years, um, what's going to happen in that world? And I think so the, even if the war were to stop, boy, the, the consequences are, are, are significant. Let me shift a little bit to ask you about the role of China and how we should assess that. In fact, of course, uh, you know, one of the things that has been characteristic of the Biden administration has been the emphasis that we need to focus on China. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the, the desire, for example, to get out of Afghanistan was the notion of let's focus on China. Um, and in fact, even as the buildup was going on, the administration was talking, well, we have to keep our eyes on, on China. Well, now we have a situation in which Russia has acted 
And China's position in all of this creates real challenges for both the United States and you might say the uh, EU as well. Um, how do you see China reacting? Um, is the alliance there one that they seem to be valuing with Russia or are they um, still playing a double game? Um, it, it's, it's an interesting double game because quite frankly, if Russia wins, China wins. If Russia loses, China wins. Got that? Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, not, not, not to be too cynical, um, but first to your point, yes, the United States is focused on China. The new US national uh, uh, defense strategy is going to come out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's sort of public form. And you are going to see threat number one, hmm, China. You know, it's, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, yeah, Ch China, COVID, and climate change. The three Cs are things you're going to need to remember. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's the one state that keeps getting brought up. Now, the other three states that we constantly think of as threats, Russia, North Korea, and Iran are in there. Um, but China gets front and center. Interestingly, and, and this is now for folks here on both sides of the political aisle, if you were to take the Trump national security strategy and the Biden one and overlap it, it's a happy Venn diagram. There are a lot of similarities. Language is different. And there are some things in the Biden uh, uh, strategy that are not in the Trump one, climate change and, and some, you know, human, some human security issues. Uh, but uh, um, China for both are important. And so you know, when I look at this for the US, again, I'll just mention us for a second, uh, the fact that this war is happening is quite frankly the last thing the U.S. wants or needs because it draws our attention away. You're absolutely right. The, the departure from Afghanistan, no matter how chaotic it was, was something that needed to be done because the, speaking from the administration's perspective, because this is what we want to do. You know, we want to put our attention to the Pacific. Russia is now attempting to shift this away. Uh, now, why do I say China wins in either way? If, you know, say Russia were to uh, 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 pacify Ukraine, you know, say it achieves its goals. Um, they have a strategic partnership. It is, you know, they are in a security arrangement, most more so through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It's not a collective defense treaty. So I, I know sometimes this gets brought up of, oh, you know, they're both in it together. No, China's not in that. They do not have that kind of relationship with Russia, but they're definitely willing to help. Um, they're not criticizing, they're leading, if you want to call it the foot dragging in the international community against Russia. Um, and so if Russia were to win, it would by definition be seen as a defeat of the West because that's how their narrative is. This is not about Russia, Ukraine. I keep saying Russia, Ukraine. In China's perspective, this is Russia, NATO, Russia, US. Ukraine is just a, a chessboard. It's just a chess piece. Uh, in this competition. And so it would be seen as a public relations and image defeat of the West, which helps China. It also would create conditions for shifting economic bases in the world, moving away from the dollarized economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if Russia fails to achieve its goal, we have a severely weakened Russia, but it's not going to disappear. Russia is not going to vanish. It will just be a weakened state. And from China's perspective, in the long run, Russia is no different than the West. These are all declining powers. We're the ascendant power. And so this just accelerates Russia's decline. You know, it gives us a little more leverage over them. And Russia, in fact, is solidified as the junior partner to China.
Um, and so that, if I'm in Moscow or in another Russian city, isn't a very pleasant thought, but in Beijing's mind, that's, that's the end state. So for China, it's an interesting fence sitting that's taking place and they wanna wait it out. They wanna see how it works. Let me follow up and ask you whether we should allow them to fence sit. Should the United States insist that China, for example, obey more of the sanctions or is there a way uh, that the United States or the EU together uh, could put pressure on China to, to isolate Russia more? Or would this be resisted very strongly? Or is this something that would not even be in our interest because it would drive Russia and China together in a way that might be dangerous? I mean, I, I think the fear of driving them together is, I don't want to say misplaced, but that's already happened. So we're there. Uh, the question is whether we you know, if China wants to be a member of the international community and not just, you know, the community of nations, but we're talking a participant in international financial organizations, um, they have to abide by certain rules. And if those other members create, you know, whether it's a, a unified sanctions, sanctions re regime on Russia or other restrictions, yeah, I, I think that China has to abide by them, ought to be forced. Um, interesting, a very small country in Europe, Lithuania, uh, is in a war with China, you know, kind of an image war, trade war, diplomatic spat. Um, a country of just over 2 million people is taking on China and the rest of the world worries. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of, of my Baltic friends. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, but it shows that um, if Europe, and in fact, I should say the EU is now revisiting that and saying, wait a second, we need to back our EU partner. I'm at, in all of this, you know, as much as I can look at what the U.S. is doing, what China's doing, what, what Russia's doing, I'm impressed with the EU. They're actually unified on something. You know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a shocker. Uh, and if there is this unity and if there is a decision to not only detach ourselves from the Russian economic space, which Europeans are now seriously looking at, the goal of 2027 being not dependent on Russian energy, you know, wow, that's that's impressive. Um, but to even make that statement about China, um, and if in concert with the U.S., if China doesn't abide by these rules, now China could. And I, I will say, somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a couple of brain cells rattling that says, you know, when China actually takes a good look at this, backing Russia is not in their interest. Um, that if they want to be seen as a responsible leader in the world, they need to abide by certain principles. And the territorial integrity of nations is one of these principles, by the way, that China holds. Uh, um, so perhaps um, they could be forced <coughs> or at least pressured into getting off that fence. I think it's going to be a while, though. I'd like to turn back a little bit to the Ukraine itself. Um, one question that certainly could be out there soon um, and was raised by my, my very uh, belligerent Indian uh, uh, interviewer the other day is whether the Ukraine wants neutrality and the United States was preventing it from offering this. But more importantly, are there things that Ukraine will accept as concessions um, that might make the West uncomfortable? Um, in effect, uh, a type of surrender of, of territory or others that, that would bother the West? Or on the, the flip side of that, will the West continue to support Ukraine if Ukraine insists 
on continued sovereignty over Crimea and the Donbas and Luhansk regions, and in a sense refuses uh, to uh, uh, abide by this, uh, by any sort of compromise agreement. Um, I'm fond of, or uh, one, one danger with talking to historians is we, we dig into analogies. And one of the analogies that has come up um, among Cold War historians about the nature of this conflict is some comparisons to the Korean War, um, in particular because of the way the Soviets attacked, the way the West mobilized in response. But one of the uh, 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 perhaps not as well-known aspects of the Korean War was the difficulty of dealing with the South Korean leadership who wanted to continue the war until they achieved reunification. And the fact that the United States had to essentially tell them, no, we're going to state, we're going to take a settlement. Um, do you think there's that possibility here with Ukraine that it could be compelled to cede sovereignty? Um, uh, what do you see as the uh, sort of the diplomatic uh, arrangements that could be uh, adjusted or uh, will it all depend, yeah. so to speak, on okay. the battlefield? No, no, in fact, uh, the other day, this is an excellent question because it reminds us that you know, all states have agency in some way, shape, or form, whether they're small, medium, large. You know, Ukraine, a country of over 40 million people, <coughs> although now, um, you know, more than 4 million of them have left their country, they're, uh, they've crossed the border, um, but that they do reserve the right to determine their destiny um, if they can. Uh, when Zelensky proposed neutrality, um, he phrased it in a way that gave Ukraine options. And now this isn't, you know, if you think of Austrian neutrality in 1955, right? The, in, in order for us to be whole and to get rid of the occupiers, the, the Soviets, the Americans, the British and the French, we'll be a neutral state, great. Um, and everyone agreed to that and the Austrians agreed to it. Um, I don't think we're going to see something of that nature. That is what Mr. Putin would like. He would like Austria or uh, Ukraine to be a really big Austria. Um, but I, I, I think Ukrainians aren't looking for that. What the Ukrainians are saying <coughs> is in terms of international alliances, and we're really going to emphasize NATO, uh, that that's probably not in the future anytime soon. You know, reality check, it probably wouldn't be anyway. Um, I think NATO enlargement was already at a high watermark. Um, and, and so, if they were to put on the table, um, you know, NATO accession, you know, is something down the future. I don't, you know, I don't think they can never say never. And, and that, I, I would be surprised if we hit that mark. But if they look at this as in the immediate uh, space, Ukraine is neutral, um, that NATO doesn't pressure it to join. Oh, wait a second, NATO's never pressured a country to join. That's the interesting thing, right? Countries that have joined NATO when NATO is enlarged have always asked to join the alliance. The demand signal has always come from the region. And so for Ukraine to say, we'll not send that demand signal, no, fair enough. Um, the interesting one will be the European Union. Um, if anything, I th think this accelerates Ukraine's uh, um, closer ties with the EU. EU accession is a trickier animal. Uh, you know, about 100,000 pages of the Aki Communitaire, good luck in joining it. I mean, you, you have to really do your homework. NATO is a political decision. EU is a process. 
Uh, and, and for them to join the EU would take a long time, but to have a closer arrangement with them, a deeper uh, a, a structure uh, a association with them, absolutely. And so I do see Ukraine offering up certain things that might you know, bring the war to a, a, a quicker end. In all of this, and, and here's, here's the, you know, I don't call it the ironic thing is, as, as much as there is this discussion in the US and in the West about, you know, you know, we're really happy to see Ukraine fight for itself. At the end of the day, if there's a settlement that stops the violence, um, we probably would accept it. And, and from the Ukrainian perspective, and last point, because you, you raised these, Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea, um, and now the new territories that have been taken, could the line go back to the original three? You know, Ukraine may accept that. Um, Crimea is a tricky one. Luhansk and Donetsk, believe it or not, are more, um, they feel that those shouldn't be contested spaces, that those should be part of Ukraine. Um, but I, I, I think the, the jury is out on that. And, and, and one final point, uh, Zelensky was really smart in saying, and oh, by the way, any of this has to be approved of in a national referendum. So one politically smart move, but secondly, I think that would really give us the pulse of the Ukrainian people. Yeah. Um, I take your point, but it does sound like there could come a sort of rub of uh, the Russians controlling, for example, Mariupol, which supposedly they're going to be able to occupy any day now. Um, they've devastated it. They control that whole coastal region. Um, is it possible then for a Ukrainian government to survive a peace settlement that would cede territory of that sort um, and then would, in effect, with Zelensky by saying popular referendum is saying, uh, in effect, that uh, you know anything I negotiate could be rejected. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like a formula actually for ongoing war. No, it, it, it could. Um... One, you know, sort of talk about we don't want to make parallels, but I'll make one anyway. Um, you know, in in the early 1990s, um, small country of Armenia took over spaces in a small country of Azerbaijan, you know, the Karabakh region. Uh, almost 20% of Azerbaijan was occupied. I once was at a conference and a geographer said, well, it's really about 18%. And he was you know, beset on as being a heretic, you know, because 20% is this magical number. 18 sounds like not much, um, you know, but uh, um, this territory was taken and for, you know, close to, you know, or 25 years, it, the assumption was it was never going to be taken back. It was never going to go back to Azerbaijan. Um, of course, in, in the fall of 2020, there was a 44-day war. Most of it's been taken back. I've had a chance now to go to that area uh, three different times on part of an Armenian-Azerbaijan border thing. So, you know, done the battlefield tours, looked at the sites. I'm stunned at what, how it was done so quickly. This is inhospitable terrain, but people were fighting for land that they really believed was theirs. And so, you know, it, it was the next generation that did it. Um, the leaders in Azerbaijan from the 1994 um, uh, uh, agreement uh, um, to the 2020 conflict, for 26 years, they had the same narrative. We believe in a unified Azerbaijan. We have, uh, we have you know, occupied territories that we want to get back. Um, not comforting to the population that was displaced, but for the Armenian people was sort of a, okay, let's focus now on the economic development of the rest of our country and move on. Um, 
But yeah, it, it gives you the risk of the continuation of conflict because never once did they say, oh, we've given this up. You know, um, right. e even though maybe privately some would say, eh, we're not getting it back. Um, nobody would ever publicly say, we've given up. It's now Armenian territory, you know, Artsakh. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to re regain it. So even in those instances, I agree with you. I think um, some secession will probably leave in the back of Ukrainians' minds of, okay, we don't have Crimea now, but there may be a point where Russia is weakened, was weakened, where we can go after it. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask one last question, and then I'd like to encourage now people to be thinking about questions and to, to offer them to our, our distinguished guest here. Um, what you, you mentioned at one point, the role of economics in all of this. Um, a lot of people would, would assume that a country without McDonald's will collapse, um, that the pain would be so intense to lose these Western features. Um, give me your assess, uh, what, you know, and, and President Biden, of course, was a little uh, uh, difficult on this one, or at least uh, in saying for a, a time, we're going to have these great sanctions and they're going to be a deterrent and then suddenly shifting and saying, no, 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 I never said that. They're not going to, it takes time. But what is the role of economic sanctions in the Russian economy? Um, how do you see those sanctions affecting things? And in many respects, are we putting a lot of very false hope in the idea that sanctions will change Russia? No, th this is, you know, th this is the tough one. And by the way, um, you know, two quick comments. Uh, yes, I think any, any, any Russian who has, you know, like an old receipt that says, come back and get a free apple pie is now really annoyed. Uh, um, and secondly, I think when Adidas pulled out, there goes the tracksuits for the mafiosi. I mean, I, I, I that that was really a tragic moment. But no, I, I think these, you know, they make us feel good. Uh, they, you know, it's the we pulled out of the country. We're doing the right thing. Now, I do think from certain corporate perspectives, it is a smart thing to do. Uh, you're now in a you know air quote dangerous situation. Um, your property could be confiscated, by the way. Let's not think that these sanctions are all one direction. Um, you know, let's not forget the Western companies that were in Iran in 1979 and suddenly found out that, oh, now they've just been nationalized. The odd exception was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, KFC lasted as a private entity franchise uh, in the Islamic Republic for about five or six more years. And someone finally goes, wait, that's American um, <laughs> and took it. But for the others, they were confiscated. And so even if the West didn't conduct, you know, the, a withdrawal of companies, they may be forced out anyway. Um, the, the goal of saying, well, okay, we're going to, we're going to limit, uh, um, you know, Russian activity. We're going to give, you know, the, you know, the removal of the SWIFT uh, uh, access and, and other banking opportunities. I mean, these hit hard. Um, but countries can be resilient. Um, you know, South Africa was isolated in much of the 1980s and, and, and uh, into the 90s. And it actually took an internal process to get rid of apartheid. I think outside sanctions could have continued for another couple decades. Cuba has been under sanctions for more than half a century. Uh, but just by the U.S., uh, German tourists and others get to go there. Um, but, you know, it, it, the notion of sanctions can be effective if there's a large community that's participating in it, 
we're not seeing that yet. It's Americans, it's Europeans, it's the Australians, it's the Japanese, it's the South Koreans. Um, but India, China, other countries, the Gulf states are still fence sitting. Um, so, you know, we'll see on that. Um, but secondly, um, it, not to say you can force them, but it gives a wonderful excuse for the Russians to escalate. Um, you know, they'll say, well, we've had no choice. You know, you're cutting off, uh, you know, our ability to sell oil and gas. And therefore, you know, so now we're in a desperate situation. You know, we're going to continue this conflict and, and maybe even start expanding it. Um, you know, so, you know, who knows where this is going? I'm not, dis I, I'm not saying sanctions can't work or sanctions are a bad idea, but we have to be mindful of their limitations. Um, but the, the economic impact of this um, we're now going to start to see in second and third order effects. And it's not just Russia, and quite frankly, not just Ukraine. Let's not forget, Ukraine is an exporter of, 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 uh, of uh, industrial goods, also agricultural goods. Um, Egypt gets over 85% of its grain from Russia and Ukraine. Georgia does about 80%. Azerbaijan does. You know, The neighboring states um, are going to feel the pinch. Even India has been seeing price rises in um, you know, wheat products because their supply chains coming out of Russia, fertilizers and other things are being disrupted. Um, we're seeing this now, it's, it's what, March 31st, right? So the spring planting you know, underway, guess what? There's not gonna be a good crop in Ukraine this year um, you know, and probably not in some of the Russian spaces. Uh, so we could see second and third order effects in other countries, not just energy, but also food products uh, and some supply chain issues. Um, and that's not just about Russia now, it, it's gonna affect other countries. And I think that's also what's making a few of the neighbors nervous. I'd like to, to now at least, uh, you guys have been very, very patient and I'd like to, <laughs> to ask if there are any questions for um, uh, back there, yes. Yeah. Okay, no, this, um, <clears throat> you know, from the Russian consumer perspective, and I'm glad, let's put the spotlight on, 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 you know, that community, um, because they are going to be paying a high price. And, you know, it is, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting, I, I had the, the joy, I was a student in the Soviet Union in the 80s, and, and a researcher in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I got to see the first McDonald's open up. And I remember the queues around it that would just stretch for so long. And it was the event. I mean, if you really wanted to impress somebody, you took them to McDonald's. Um, well, and, and it was cool. I mean, and it was a status thing. And, and, um, and okay, it, it sort of lost its luster. By the way, there are a lot of McDonald's or were, um, but it's, it's also the other, it's the high-end Western goods, you know, for the elite crowd, not just the oligarchs, but the well-off, you know, the professional class. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Versace or, you know, you name it, uh, that, you know, these products now may not be accessible. Um, I mentioned that Soviet past because that's exactly how it was then. 
uh, Russia, sorry, the Soviet Union was less than 1% of US trade. You know, it was insignificant. Um, if it goes back to that, you know, if we go full circle 30 plus years later and say, hmm, Russia now is economically insignificant to the West, um, we're gonna have these parallel economies. We're gonna have, um, you know, Russians will have commercial goods. They'll just be Indian, Chinese, you know, something else, uh, Iranian. Um, you know, they're not going to be American or if they are, they're gonna be smuggled in. For example, there was a, an interesting, when, when sanctions started coming on Russia from the EU, um, they would have all sorts of, um, you know, what was it? Uh, um, Belarusian Bella Rockford or Belarusian, you know, uh, uh, you know, Western goods, you know, Belarusian oh. German sausage, because goods would be smuggled into Belarus and then, you know, or brought into Belarus and then smuggled into Russia. Um, you know, we'll see a bit of that, um, but it's, you will see a separation. And I think the Russian consumers who have been used to Western products, you know, Western online shopping is now not going to be possible, right? And that's something we've all become accustomed to. Um, they'll just have to go with different products. Uh, and that's going to be disappointing, depressing. Um, and, and, and I'll be curious if on the other end, if a Russian is able to travel abroad and then they bring back Western products, are they allowed to bring those in? Or will their government confiscate them as they did back in the Soviet days? You know, if you brought in, you know, Levi's jeans, they would be confiscated at the border. Um, so are we going to go back to that dynamic? I, you know, I, 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 but th these will be frustrating moments. Will the Russian consumers be angry, upset, depressed? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and, and that's where I think, you know, pressure from below will come up. Not that it will change anything, but you're going to see a lot of anger and frustration below. Yes. Um, you're, you're leading right into what mm -hmm. my question was. So what segment of society in Russia will someone reach a point of the current administration's directions are not good for the country? No. And we need to change the situation. At, at, where is that going to come from? And given Mr. Putin's mm -hmm. background and leanings, is it even possible? You know, this, this is the, and this is all Chatham House rules, right? Now, the, <laughs> I don't want to get caught. Oh, he said, no. The, um, the one thing he has going for him, and, and I will say, you know, it's not, oh, there's this surge of support behind him in, um, in this campaign. In fact, if anything, I think he did a really poor job in the information campaign prior. Prior to the Crimea takeover, um, there was a rather long period of media coverage of uh, uh, you know challenges in Crimea, the concerns of Russia, Ukraine, you know, being this bad neighbor, et cetera. And then with the uh, Maidan Square episode, you know, that was, uh, that fell right in the lap of Mr. Putin where he could portray Ukraine as, as a horrible country and why Crimea should be liberated and saved. Um, this one, the media campaign was pretty brief uh, and you actually had Russians and we know this because, you know, they've been captured and interviewed, which I know could be a challenge of one of the Geneva Conventions on treatment of prisoners, but, they were interviewed all the same, and they didn't even know where they were going. They thought this was a training exercise. They thought they were going to, you know, another place. They didn't even realize 
they were attacking the neighborhood, say, around Kiev or up in, you know, down in uh, Mariupol or something. So the, the information campaign uh, was pretty poor. In fact, I was on a, a webinar with some Russian academics, had to have been the 19th, 20th of February. It was like, a, it was about like four or five days before. And, and one was still insistent, there is no war. This is about, you know, gamesmanship. This is about who's going to blink first, but there's going to be no crossing the border. You know, 24 Feb happens. Oops. Yeah, the border was crossed. So I don't think he prepared his population, but the, so the one thing he has in his favor is statistically, and this is public opinion polls done by both Western organizations oh. and, and Russian organizations, um, and they're fairly consistent. Um, how there's a growing anti-Americanism in Russia. Uh, and it's not a hatred for the U.S. as a, you know, evil country, but the U.S. as a country that meddles in its affairs, most importantly, a country that doesn't respect Russia. And this, by the way, is something that, you know, if you want to wag a finger at us, yeah, we, the U.S. has done a poor job of dealing with Russia from the collapse of the Soviet Union to the present. You know, we sort of treated them as a lesser country. And so, um, not to say that justifies war, on the contrary, but it, it shapes an anti-Americanism. Interestingly, not an anti-Europeanism. Uh, um, Europe is still viewed in a schizophrenic way. So whether it's oligarchs, whether it's Soloviki, whether it's mass population, you see these percentages. As long as this war is still being cast as Russia defending itself against US actions in its neighborhood, which is the narrative, um, they're gonna be okay. Uh, the losses, the casualties are being obfuscated. Um, we don't know how many have died. Um, rumor has it the numbers might be in the five figures. If that's the case, we're approaching Afghan war figures, and it took them 10 years to get those? Come on, this is insane. Um, but uh, as long as he has that, who could change it? I'm just going to say it would probably be somebody from the inside who could get to him, and I mean speak to him or otherwise, because um, the population demonstrations, you know, yeah, they've taken place, but quite frankly, people are afraid, um, was just kind of final comment, a uh, couple of, uh, a part of a U.S.-Russia track two discussion, and some of our Russian interlocutors are basically saying they can't speak with us anymore because it's damaging to their career or perhaps other uh, so, you know, we're going to probably see a quieting of, 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 of vocal opposition. So there's a question in, way yeah. in the back uh, that's been very persistent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the, no, excellent comments. And I should say on the first, on the expansion of NATO, and I've watched this from the beginning, um, in terms of the agreement, um, and I've heard this narrative from both sides, and there are some will say, oh, you know, Jim Baker made this comment or someone else made this comment. I've seen transcripts from the Russian intelligence officers that uh, wrote things down. <laughs> There is no signed document. There is no memorandum. There is no discussion. Now, what I would say at the time, if I'm thinking of 1990, 1991, um, Soviet Union is collapsing. Um, and there's a um, wonderful book, the author's name, uh, Zubok, uh, called Collapse. So easy to remember. But it's the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a, it's a biography, if you will, of 1991. And he does a wonderful job. And I think this is instructive for all in this room, uh, I should say, 
it, it, it's going to, cause it's going to take someone of the younger generation in this room years later to write about this because they're not personally involved in. And I think that's one of the, you know, when you have people writing their memoirs, they're going to write it from the perspective that basically says, oh, if they had only listened to me, you need an objective historian or mostly objective historian who can look back. So when we see this discussion of what took place about NATO, um, from the NATO perspective, quite frankly, enlargement wasn't an issue. It was not in the card, so to speak. Uh, I was involved with some of the early discussions of working with um, you know, the Bulgarian military, the Russian military, I worked with the Russian general staff. And um, it was about um, familiarization. Uh, it was about us learning about them, them learning about us, if you want to call it uh, uh, confidence building measures with these new militaries. Um, there were all sorts of discussions of what countries could do with their militaries. Some like Moldova and Kyrgyzstan said, we're not going to have a military. That's, that's a great idea. Um, others like Ukraine and Kazakhstan said, we're not going to, we're going to give up our nuclear weapons. And Ukraine does this with the promise that its territorial integrity would be held intact. That was the Budapest memorandum. Yes, not a treaty, but an agreement. Um, and so, you know, th this notion of working with NATO, um, you know, was, was at the time, quite frankly, not an issue. Uh, a number of countries, uh, four actually, uh, Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, um, Hungary, and Poland asked to join. Um, uh, 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 yeah, uh, Slovakia had the misfortune of having a leader that was kind of on the outs with the West. And so those first three became members in 97, and no one raised a peep. This was, you know, the Russians, not to say didn't care, but there was no objection to that. Um, the expansion beyond that, again, at the behest of each of the member states wanting to join, um, was evaluated, assessed. Um, you know, personally, and I'll, I'll be pretty blunt here, I thought it went too far too fast. I thought NATO was bringing in countries that weren't up to NATO standards. Uh, and as a military organization, mm, not, a, not a smart move, but it happens all the same. Um, and you know the political statements, and this gets up to the George uh, W. Bush years, where we talk about Georgian membership, and he's the one that really advocated it. By the way, he's the only one that has since him, from Obama to Trump to, to Biden, Nobody's talked about Georgian uh, uh, accession into NATO. In fact, they kind of would. We want NATO wants to work with Georgia, not have Georgia in NATO. Um, and and so it's really been. I look at it as countries wanting to join. Um, is it seen as anti-Russian? In fact, if anything, NATO became anything but Europe. It became uh, Mediterranean security. It became Afghanistan. It became Middle East issues. It became transatlantic issues transnational threats, counter-narcotics, you name it. Uh, even now focusing on China, Russia becomes just part of this bigger picture. And in fact, the continual focus on having Russia with an office in shape, uh, Russia, the Russia-NATO Council was seen as an important entity. Russia leaves it. Um, you know, there were, there were opportunities to cooperate and it failed. I agree with you. The perception within Russia, there's no question uh, that there are, you know, there's a, a fairly strong narrative that says NATO enlargement um, was seen as a threat to Russia. Absolutely. The, the irony today is with this, I still don't see Ukraine and Georgia any closer to NATO membership 
I do see Sweden and Finland now being in NATO, uh, and perhaps a few other countries. Uh, that, that's kind of the strange irony uh, of this. So I, I agree with you. And then just lastly, on the regime issue, um, or regime change, um, if you kind of walk back, and I know, you know political leaders, especially with live mics, love to say all sorts of things, and I'm just going to throw it at that. Um, this is not, and I do not put this in the same category as Saddam Hussein in Iraq or the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, this really is about Saddam Hussein in Kuwait. If you go back to the 1990 war, um, Kuwait was liberated. That's it. The U.S. didn't go any farther. I know George Herbert Walker Bush was chastised for that, but in my opinion, he did the exact right thing. Uh, and in this one, I don't think that there's any intent on doing it, you know, doing something to change Russia or making Russia turn into another country, a Middle Eastern country, you name it. In fact, if anything, the hope was that we could rewind the clock and have it, even if it's a contentious relationship. And Russian-American ties, like it or not, are never going to be cozy. I'm done with resets. I'm done with restarts. Um, but can we have peaceful coexistence? Absolutely. Uh, this has really set that back. I think this has really set it back. I do think, I do think American <laughs> political leaders love um, certain types of yeah. rhetoric. It does work. I mean, it is part of that. So. Okay. No. Um, first of all, you know what's happening in Luhansk and Donetsk, in my opinion, is still an internal Ukrainian issue. Just as you know, if you want to say Chechnya was an internal issue, um, you know we have you know for Russia, uh, and so if one were to look at what Poroshenko did or did not do, and actually there was media coverage of it, um, <coughs> I obviously look at other media. Mainstream U.S. media tends not to look at this part of the world, <coughs> you know, except for what's happening now. But uh, the, um, you know, in, in terms of the fighting back and forth, there were also Ukrainians on the other side killed. Let's not forget the downing of a Malaysian, air, you know, jetliner um, by Russian forces, actually. Um, and so, you know, there was engagement. What we have now, and the difference I would just throw out is internal issue. This is the invasion of one state against another, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. It is not an internal issue. It is not a civil war. It is a national invasion. Um, and by the way, 
I said that about the US invading Iraq. It was not a liberation, it was an invasion. I'm simply using international law terminology. <clears throat> in that, um, the question of cause of why Russia goes in is something that we're gonna have to assess uh, the motivation for it. Um, but in terms of you know, the outcome, this is still a two-state war. Mr. Putin is gonna be held accountable because of what he did to his neighbor. Um, by the way, he also has never been held accountable for what he did in Chechnya. And if you go to Grozny, it looks beautiful today. It didn't in 1996, 97, 99. Um, but um, you know, it's, um, this is uh, sadly kind of one of the, I don't call it realities of, of, of countries today. There may be these double standards as perceived, um, but that's the world we're working in. Maybe we take two more short questions and <coughs> answers. Yes. We're running long on time. Okay. okay, back there. Since the Congo crisis of the 1960s, there's been an increase in Western mercenaries and volunteers in foreign conflicts. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm asking about 20,000 foreign volunteers in Ukraine as of right now. Do you think going forward in any other future foreign conflicts, the United States will either support or prevent any of their own volunteers from going, whether it's EU countries or other? No, th this, this is an excellent question. This is a trend. That worries me. Uh, we have some, uh, you know, foreign companies. The Wagner Group, probably the most famous, you know, in terms of from the Russian side, that acts as a, if for all intents and purposes, a military force that is outside the law of armed conflict. Um, most mercenaries, private military companies, actually work as security forces. Even some of the most, what I would call odious ones, like Blackwater and all that. Um, believe it or not, still worked within specific frames. Um, but groups like Wagner fighting militarily, we're gonna see this with Syrian volunteers. On the other side, my worry is that we see the same thing. These volunteer brigades, as you know, air quote heroic as they can be, um, how do they fight? What are they abiding by? Um, are we going to charge them as, um, you know, basically if they take up weapons and create casualties, that is if they kill people, is that uh, justifiable by laws of armed conflict or is it murder? I mean, these are real legal issues that have to be addressed. And so, uh, you know, you know, if, if they're um, Ukrainian citizens, oddly, they're in a different situation. Uh, Self-defense can come in. Uh, but if they're volunteers who come from the outside, and we've seen this in Syria, we've seen this in other settings, um, it raises a number of legal issues. So I agree with you. If this starts to increase, um, it could be problematic for both sides. We're, we're going we're gonna to pause here, I understand.